Chris's Ramble 6 Just how old are the Irish stories? I was recently asked this question. So, just how old are the Irish stories? Well, there was a bit more to it than that. My questioner had come across a book. She couldn't remember the author, although she believed it to have been written by an academic working in the UK. But the main point was that the writer had stated that, in her opinion, the Irish mythological tales were all made up from scratch in the medieval period. I can't, of course, comment on this particular opinion. I don't know either the book or the overall intentions of the author. However, it did set me thinking. I feel that these wonderful mythological Irish stories are old. I would even say that I know they're old. But what evidence can I suggest to back this up? What do I mean by old? Come to think of it, what do I mean by medieval? Well, let's follow that path first. I'm afraid we might encounter just a few nettle patches on the way. What do I really mean by medieval? Now, I grew up and studied history in the UK before I transferred to Ireland, uh, just around, just slightly over 30 years ago. The definition of medieval tends towards the slightly controversial among UK historians. Some would say that there is an early medieval period beginning sometime between four to 500 CE, once Roman administration is gone. But others accept that the medieval period does not begin until 1100 or thereabout. Before that, there was a slightly ill-defined Iron Age, followed by the around 400 or more years of Roman influence, and then the Saxon Viking period. Well, that could be described as early medieval, but that's generally applied to the time after the Normans have settled in, say around the time of Henry I. And he reigns from 1100, so there you are. But that's just the UK and is largely irrelevant to an assessment of Irish history. There was no long period of direct Roman influence, although, of course, lines of intellectual thought and learning with the continent remained open and active throughout. Ireland was separate, but it certainly wasn't a backwater. Now, the Vikings made a nuisance of themselves, becoming thoroughly established in the east of the country. Dublin is undoubtedly a Viking-founded city, but they also appear in stories from the northwest of the island. Uh, they're almost certainly the men of Lachlan, the Lachlanuk, the outsiders or others, so frequently referenced in stories. Isolda and I even wondered if the portrayal of the Fovera battle chief Balor in the Kathmagaturid might have ended up with a description of a Yutun, a frost giant from Norse mythology. There is an oral story from the northwest of Ireland that tells how Balor tried to tow the whole island of Ireland into the far north where it could be left to freeze. But Shinskelela, that's another story. My Irish historian and archaeologist colleagues tend to refer to the early medieval period as including the, the later Iron Age and what is often referred to as early Christian. So early medieval and medieval labels kind of blur into each other, which is why medieval can be used to refer to events even before the Normans arrived or Norman influence becomes apparent. See what I mean? A few nettle patches. And that other equally prickly path, what do I mean by old? Well, that's kind of subjective. 
I have met young people who consider the moon landings as ancient history, and to me they are as clear a memory as yesterday. Perhaps clearer than some yesterdays. On the other hand, I who do have a particular interest in what is referred to as ancient history am frequently accused as regarding anything less than 2,000 years back as modern. In all my workshops, storytelling and interactive video presentation for schools and libraries, I choose to embed the early Irish stories into a kind of later Iron Age setting, certainly pre-Norman. Well, it's more fun that way. The Iron Age roundhouses really demonstrate how you can create impressive houses from locally available materials, wood, rushes and mud mostly. And then there's the men's hairstyles. Observers of the time describe men with hair spiked up and whitened with lime like sudden hedgehogs. And that idea always raises eyebrows. The jewellery and personal embellishments recovered from the Iron Age are definitely bling-worthy. And of course, the roundhouses went on being lived in for a long time. No Roman influence. No square stuff or rectangle stuff. It all stays round. Now, it might be surprising, perhaps, that in Ireland, the Iron Age, though, is still a bit mysterious. The number of known sites is comparatively low. There might be something to account for this. There does seem to be a definite population drop towards the end of the Iron Age, or early medieval period, in Ireland. Daniel Curley from the Rathcrohan Centre and I discussed this in our conversation the other year. We talked about how a decade of climate disruption resulted in poor harvests and famine, followed closely by mortality from what is thought to be possibly the most serious pandemic in history, the Justinian Plague. The annals tell us that the effects were severely felt in Ireland. There's evidence to back this up, even from Mohill, a small town here in Leitrim, a few kilometres from where I live. Daniel was also telling me that there is not only evidence of the climate downturn, the dendrochronological tree record, but that over the next century pollen records also suggest that there was actually an increase of wooded areas, suggesting a smaller population working on the land. Now, I have found suggestions that there might also have been rapid growth of roughs, ditched and fenced homesteads, enclosures, about the same time, suggesting that survivors were gathering together in better defended groups. Well, it would have made sense. We wondered if there might have been opportunities for the remaining local chieftains to extend their territories through cattle raids or by offering food, shelter and defence to those isolated by the pandemic, bringing them together under their influence. Now, this would lead to fewer but better resourced local chiefs vying for the top status spots, you know, top king. We even speculated whether some of the stories attached to the Torn might not have been drawing on this. Like the Kathmakaturid, it would have explained why there was so much stress laid on the loss and restoration of fertility and prosperity. That does remain a powerful subtext of both cycles. This is speculation, of course, and it doesn't offer datable evidence for the story cycles. But, well, it's indicative. Oh, yes, and there was another serious plague pandemic in 644, well, round about a century later. Bede also wrote about this one, as did Adovnorn, Colm Kill's biographer. Plagues leave scars, and memories of them, well, might easily colour tales in perpetuity. 
but it doesn't explain some of the earlier Iron Age oddities. Kurkonai Rathkrohen in Connacht is one of the most important Iron Age royal centres, set in a landscape replete with Neolithic and Iron Age elements, plus a cave, Onigat, which is as remarkable in the world of story as it is in everyday life. The Iron Age roundhouse and the feasting hall must have been worthy of any of the stories of Merthyr herself. Now there's also Awanmaka, now known as Navan Fort. It, that's a complex landscape of Neolithic Bronze Age and Iron Age sites also, and there does seem to be definite archaeological evidence of an Iron Age residence that's really fit for a chieftain there. Well, I suppose that makes sense. Stories of Concover's Court are full of vibrant and vivid detail. And there's loads of stories in the Torn and all its Revskelter. So from the story of Maka to Brickroof's Feast, there's a wealth of verbal treasures to select from. Now, at Navan Fort, it's the archaeological story of the 1st century BC that really adds an odd twist. It seems that the huge timber roundhouse-like structure was built there, about 40 metres in diameter, and it consisted of an outer wall and four inner rings of posts, which probably held up a roof, and that circled a huge central pillar. The oak pillar has been dated by dendrochronology to the year 95 BC, so it's well dated, and the building had a western entrance, which suggests that it wasn't an ordinary dwelling. After all, if you think about it, if you want light in, you're going to get you're going to get the entrance at the east, not at, at the west. Now, not long after it was built, apparently the building was filled up with thousands of stones to a height of nearly three meters, and split into wedges, making it look a bit like a spoked wheel when seen from above. And then the building was deliberately burnt down before being covered in a mound of earth. And all this earth was made up of lots of different types of soil, all brought from places in the local area or even further away. Of course, nobody knows or has any clue why this was done. And there must be as many theories about what it all means as there are archaeologists. Well, look at the evidence, see what you think. And I really should include the Corley Trackway Centre in this brief snapshot of Iron Age sites. What? Is what is really great about this trackway is that in itself it isn't a mystery. Thanks to dendrochronology, it can be precisely dated to 148 BC, and its methods of construction are also well fairly well understood. It's an Iron Age site, and therefore it just has to have an aura of mystery somewhere. The creation of the causeway over Monlovriga by Mither as part of the bride price for Aideen makes up a powerful element in the Topmark Edna. Now, the poetic style associated with this section of the story suggests strongly that it's an early and crucial moment in the tale. It's all told in poetry. In the Topmark Edna, the effort of creating this causeway is so great that Mither requires every bit of his, his other world resources and abilities. And because it's so hard, he demands that he must remain unobserved. However, there's always one who doesn't listen, and Yockard Stewart flouts this demand and secretly watches. And because of this, the road contains a fatal flaw. It will not last. 
Now, the odd thing is, although it would have taken a major effort to build such a high-status Oaken Road, it would have been lost within around 10 years of when it was built. Yes, it really was built with a fatal flaw, just like the one in the story. Now, the road was lost to sight and presumably memory for the best part of 2,000 years, but the top Mark Aidener does seem to reference it. Now, I know, again, it doesn't constitute datable evidence, but it's really interesting. And then there's other internal evidence to be gained from descriptions found in so many old stories. No, not the setting of Concover's court at the time of the birth of Christ. That definitely smelt a bit of red herring. But there are descriptions of chariots, weapons, personal ornamentation that really invoke Iron Age lifestyles. There's the centrality of the feast, the rules of govern their management. There are odd little details like the apple branch staffs that must be shaken before the king can speak and so much more. Yes, the whole structure of early Irish society is entirely alien to the top-down, one-king-under-God rules-everybody-else structure that ultimately derives from Roman law. Now, I really could go on and on a bit more, but this is just a ramble, and the path is going on a bit as it is. Yeah, as I keep saying, none of this constitutes irrefutable, datable evidence, but there are significant possibilities that attest to so many of the Irish stories as having in essence been passed down by a long living active oral tradition. So okay what can be discovered from the texts that are still available to us today? Now I'm the first to admit that I have no personal expertise in this field. I am not a philologist and I'm no linguist. So, what have I got to offer? Well, all I can say is that I did have the privilege to work with my gifted philologist colleague and highly qualified expert in early Irish, Isolde Carmody. And I learned a great deal from her over the years, although, of course, I still can't speak early Irish. Well, a bit, but not much. However, let's have a look at a few of the texts. Now, we could begin with the Kathmagaturid. At first glance, the evidence for antiquity looks unpromising. It's sometimes described as an early modern tale taken from a 17th 17th century manuscript. This version only largely covers the battle itself. But there is also an early 9th century tale from the manuscript known as Harleian 5280. Now, this manuscript is 16th century, but the language is Old Irish. Supposedly... Proper linguistics suggest it's early 9th, if not a bit earlier. The best and most accessible version to read is the Elizabeth Gray translation. Even so, when I first read her translation, I became somewhat irritated by several there is more but it has not been translated sections. These untranslated sections were interspersed throughout, but mostly in the heat of battle. Or the most annoying bit, the second prophecy of the Morrigan towards the close of the story. Now, when Isolde came to examine them in the original early Irish, she identified these sections as Roscada, very early poetic pieces, difficult and obscure, but the oldest part of the text. She then decided to take a master's in early Irish and place these poems as central to her master's thesis. So, there are now translations of these poems available on story archaeology and very illuminating they are. Isolde also explained that these sections 
really did represent the residue of the earliest oral telling of the tale in poetry, and that there was evidence to show that the language of the poetry could go back much further, to the ninth century, older perhaps. OK, so now let's take a look towards the Tombo Cunha. The two main recensions are found in 12th century manuscripts. The Book of the Dun Cow dates from around 1100 and the Book of Leinster about 60 years later. There's a third telling preserved in a 14th century text. They're also composed from prose and poetic sections and as far as I'm aware, all scholars would agree that the torn is directly taken from much older oral versions, the poetry probably easily 7th century. There's also general agreement that the pre-Christian tribal lifestyles are still widely represented throughout this story cycle, including much of the Revskelta. Oh, I could say so much more about the Torn, how it contains the only stories that may reflect Latin culture in Ireland, that aspects of one of the Revskelta stories, Fled Brickran, seems to have inspired a late but important medieval English story, Gawain and the Green Knight, but if I keep on exploring this one path, we might end up wandering as wildly as Cahullin himself on his journey to find the warrior teacher Skark. Um, yeah, but it might still be worth including a quick visit to the Imrov Bron. This is the story where Bron meets a woman with a strange and beautiful apple branch, and her words lead him to make an Imrov journey to seek out the otherworld island where she may be found. On the way, he meets Mananan, who prophesies the birth of a, now virtually forgotten, hero-child Mongorn, who will become both poet and leader. Now, once again, this story is found in the 12th century Book of the Dun Cow, but the composition has been assigned again to the late 7th or 8th century. The reason that I wanted to include this text is that it has some interesting Christian added interpolations that may well be almost as old as the text. Perhaps the theme of a prophesied saviour child was just a bit too much for the learned monks, however important they felt it was to curate their own oral stories. But generally, they seemed quite comfortable including what were clearly pre-Christian elements of oral stories. Look, this has been a longish walk. But I think we can get a view of the possible answers of the question we set out to answer. Are, are Irish stories old, or were they made up in the medieval period? Well, it's no contest, really. Yes, all the remaining extant texts are medieval or early modern, but why would so many different writers be making up all these new stories, confidently and coherently composing in a language from half a millennium before, and that then adding even more complex and obscure ancient poetic sequences that would have been as difficult to decode as they are today? There are a number of medieval literary Irish stories, and they're kind of different, both in tone and approach. They're lighter, less epic, more self-aware. They're, they're often witty, with surprising, jokey comments that are still amusing today. The Children of Turin, the delightful and bawdy 15th-century version of Fergus MacLager, or Tige in the Other World. You can find all of these on story archaeology, so I won't go into detail now. Those stories are very different. They're not curated tales from an ancient oral tradition. These are to be read by a literate, and by 15th century standards, enjoyed by a modern audience. 
Stories grow and change with the telling over the years, over the centuries, and over the communities which go on telling and enjoying them. And they get adapted in style and content to suit the taste of the times in which they are being retold. One folktale telling turns Fionn McCool into a giant and sets him building a bridge to Scotland. Finn stories were also found in parts of Scotland from an early date, and he probably didn't need to turn the giant's causeway into a bridge just to get there. But Finn being hidden in a cradle by his wife when threatened by an even bigger giant is still a very is still a fun story. And of course, folk versions continued to grow and change as they were told. Many of Mither's stories of balance and judgment were given over to Mananan, and Mananan in his turn became a travelling entertainer, a conjurer, even offering an early Irish version of what we think of now as the Indian rope trick. Now, I'm not planning to travel through that clearing right now, but I will add a couple of links to podcast episodes, which will explain a bit more, if you like. Then there's the Govan Smith tales, which record the best bits, the cunning craft and building skills of the smith, and the strength and verbal dexterity of the Dagda. They continued on, and were eventually recorded in writing, in their new forms. The early Irish text became somewhat lost, obscure for a while, and then scholarship recovered them just in time to provide a powerful and eloquent national narrative just when it was most needed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So it's hardly surprising that the overgrown child giant hero and comic relief character Cahullan became a troubled tragic hero. But it seems that the stories, old as they clearly are, still carry messages that we need to hear today. And the earliest, perhaps original, subtexts that may have possibly been woven more deeply into the stories at the time of the 6th century climate downturn and the great mortality might get round to speaking to us again today. For they all tell that if we do not take care of our environment, it will become a wasteland. So here we are back. Yes, the stories are old. Perhaps very old. But they still carry relevant information. And besides that, they're really great stories. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon. <laughs>